Lord, thank you for your precious word, which is inspired, filled with life. Lord, you said that my words are spirit and life. And uh, we're privileged to be able to read the inspired living word of God today. Pray that it would teach us, instruct us. Pray that it would fill us with faith, greater faith, comfort. The Lord, you would help us to exult in Christ's victory over death and the grave. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to focus in on verses 10 to 12. But before we get to that, I just want to mention to you that Isaiah chapter 53 has been revered by God's people for at least 2,700 years. It's been called the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament. It's the high water mark of the Old Testament scripture. I mean, when we come to this chapter, we're coming to a very sacred and special, all, all of the word of God is sacred and special, but this is like even more so if it could be. Because it is so descriptive and accurate concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. It was written 700 years before Jesus even came into the world. Martin Luther once said that this chapter should be written on parchments of gold and lettered in diamonds. And I think he's right. I, when I was a young Christian, I, I committed the chapter to memory because it made such an impact on me as I read it over. It's the most clear and detailed prophecy of Jesus in the Old Testament. In fact, as you read through this chapter, you might think you are reading one of the Gospels because it is so descriptive and clear about Jesus and what he came to do. And so as we go through the chapter, you're going to see parts of it speak about the life of Jesus, and then it speaks about his rejection, and then his sufferings, and then his trial, and then his death, and then his burial. And it does all of that in the first nine verses. For example, the life of Christ. Look at verse 1. I'm sorry, verse 2. He grew up before him, before the Father, like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. So he grew up before the Father. He, he, didn't, he didn't wear a halo. He didn't look different than everybody else on the earth. He, he had no stately form. Even though he was a king, he didn't look like a king outwardly. So this is speaking about the life of Christ. And then the rejection of Christ. Verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. So the people of this world rejected the king when he came into the world. They despised him. To despise someone means you turn down your nose in contempt at that individual. Not only that, but we see the trial of Christ here. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. This is speaking about when Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin and they put him on the witness stand and they asked him, are you the Son of God? Are you the Messiah? He, he, he wouldn't open his mouth either to defend himself or to condemn them. He was just silent like a, a lamb, a sheep, going before 
uh, to its slaughter. Then we also read about the sufferings of Christ. Verse 4 says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Verse 5, By his scourging we are healed. Verse 6, The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So, he bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, was scourged, and our sin fell upon him. So the sufferings of Christ are depicted for us. And then the death of Christ. Verse 5, he was pierced through, it's talking about crucifixion 700 years before it was even invented, which is an interesting thing in and of itself. When Isaiah wrote these words, nobody was crucifying anybody. It wasn't even invented until the Romans came along, hundreds of years later. But the prophet foresees the time when his hands and feet would be pierced. Verse 8, he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Cut off out of the land of the living. That means he died. Verse 10, the Lord was pleased to what? Crush him. It's talking about his death again. God the Father was pleased to crush and to kill his son. Verse 12, he poured out himself to death. And not only that, we have the burial of Christ mentioned in verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. So we have the life, the rejection, the sufferings, the trial, the death, and the burial of Jesus Christ written for us within this chapter, the first nine verses. So was that the end? Was that the end of the story? He dies and he's buried in a rich man's grave. Do we leave him as a forsaken, despised, pierced, wounded, oppressed, and afflicted sufferer? No. Because Jesus Christ was not a victim. In his death, he was the victor. He was the champion who triumphed over sin and death and hell and Satan. He was the mighty Samson who pulled up the gates, put them on his shoulders and walked out of that city. The death could not hold him because he was the mighty righteous one. Jesus was not just a rejected messianic candidate. You know, some people could look at him as like that. Oh, he was the martyr. He was, he was just a rejected Messiah figure. No, he was a co-partner in a divine master plan, which would not end in humiliation, but in exaltation, which we're going to see today. And ultimately, the work of God's servant, Jesus Christ, is going to bring pleasure to the Father and satisfaction to himself. That's what our text is going to tell us. But you say, Brian, you're talking about the resurrection of Jesus in this chapter, where in the world are you seeing that? I don't see anywhere that it talks about him being raised from the dead. The word resurrection is never found here. The, even the word rise doesn't come up in this chapter. Well, let me show you where I'm finding it. Verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. Now, do you guys remember anything about the guilt offerings of the Old Testament? They were animal sacrifices. There are several different kinds of offerings. One was the guilt offering. The animal would be killed. And he was killed on behalf of the guilt of God's people. It was a guilt offering. The Bible says here, if Jesus would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. Now wait a minute. We've already found out that he's a guilt offering. He died. We already found out that he was cut off out of the land of the living. 
His grave was assigned with wicked men. He was with a rich man in his death, it says. So if he died, if he was crushed by God, how is he prolonging his days? Once you're dead, you don't prolong your days anymore, unless you rise from the dead. And so, although it's not explicitly stated, I believe it's implicitly stated in verse 10. He is a guilt offering, but that, that's not the end of Jesus Christ. He will prolong his days. He's going to see his offspring, and the good pleasure of the Lord is going to prosper in his hand. So this morning, what I want to do is help, help us all to meditate and focus in on the fruits of Christ's resurrection. What were the benefits to Jesus himself from his resurrection from the dead? And I get that from verse 10. This is the language of covenant. It says, it's an if-then statement. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, then these are the things that are going to follow. Do you see that? That's what a covenant is. If you will do this, then I will do that. Both parties make a contract. Like if, if, if you give me that brand new car, then I'm going to pay you $600 a month for the next five years. That's a contract. That's a covenant. If Jesus would give up himself as a guilt offering, these are all the things that the God the Father is going to do for him. He's going to prolong his days. He's going to see his offspring. The good pleasure of the Lord is going to prosper in his hand, among other things, as we're going to see. So I want to show you five fruits that flow out of the resurrection of Jesus Christ this morning. The first one is that he's going to see his people. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. His offspring. Now who are they? Who are the offspring? Well, look at verse 11. The second half of that verse. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify who? The many. The many. There's another name for the offspring. The many. Not all. Not all are going to be saved by what Jesus did, but many will. Verse 12. I will allot him a portion with who? The great. There's another name for this offspring. They're called the great. Not the great in terms of being like Popeye, <laughs> strong. The great in terms of being lots of them. A great, a great number of them. And he will divide the booty with who? The strong. There's another name for these offspring. They're called the strong. The, the word here for many and for great are the exact same Hebrew word. It's talking about the same group of people. And he's going to divide the booty of his victory at the cross with all of this many, all of the offspring, all of them. He's called, they're called here the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Hebrews 2 verse 10 and 13 will help us a lot to understand the offspring idea. Because Hebrews 2.10 says... It was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. And then three verses later, Hebrews 2.13 says, and th these are the words of Jesus, Behold, I and the children whom God has given to me. Now think about those two phrases. To perfect 
bringing many sons to glory. That's the first phrase. And then this one, behold, I and the children whom God has given to me. So the offspring of Isaiah 53 are the many sons that Jesus Christ is going to bring to glory of Hebrews 2.10. And they are the children whom God had given to him. Did you know that God gave to Jesus children? He said, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never in no wise cast out. There were these children that the Father had given to the Son. Jesus came into the world to get them, to save them, to represent them, and to bring them to glory. Behold, I and the children whom you have given to me. So that's who the offspring are. They're you can call them the church if you want. You can call them the bride of Christ. You can call them believers. You can call them Christians. They are the ones that Jesus came to save by his blood and by his righteousness. Now, one of the benefits of the resurrection is that Jesus will see his people, his offspring. One day in heaven there's going to be a roll call. And our Savior is going to search to see whether all his sheep, all his children that he purchased with his blood, made it. And just like the sheep knows all, of, or the shepherd knows all of the sheep, and the sheep know the shepherd, so Jesus is going to have all of his sheep pass under his hand, and count them one by one, and he knows them all by name, and he's going to find out, are all those that were written in the Lamb's book of life, are they present and accounted for? And as they go under his hand, they'll say, remember in school you'd say, here, they take roll call every day, or present, we're, we're going to say the same thing. I'm here, Lord. <laughs> I made it by your grace. I couldn't have done it without you. No way, no how. It's, it's all you're doing that I'm here, but I'm here, Lord. So he's going to see every single one of his offspring, the ones that he came into the world to get. John 6, 38 and 39. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. The will of God is that Jesus would lose nothing of all that the Father gave him. So if you are one of those that the Father gave to the Son, you're not going to be lost on that day. And it won't be because of your great super-powered righteousness and good deeds and prayer life. and It's going to be because of His matchless grace that we're there. Because of the mighty resurrection of Jesus Christ, He is going to see every one of His blood-bought children. They're going to be surrounding His throne. Not one will be missing. He's going to see His offspring. Number two, He's going to accomplish God's pleasure for His people. Isaiah 53, the end of verse 10, says, And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now in order to understand what he means by good pleasure of the Lord, we just need to go back in Isaiah a few chapters to chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. And Isaiah is going to help us to understand what he means by the good pleasure of the Lord. So Isaiah 46, verse 9 says, remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done. Saying, my purpose will be established. 
and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Now notice the term good pleasure there. The end of verse 10. This is something you students of the Bible, as you're reading the Bible of yourself, especially when you're in the Old Testament, it even comes up in the New Testament, there's something that we call parallelism that's important. A parallel verse means there are two parallel lines and each of those lines are saying the same thing but using slightly different language. Now, let me read the sentence over again and you tell me what's parallel. My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. What is parallel to established? What's another word that says means the same thing there? Let me read it again. Think on this. My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Accomplished. Accomplished and established are saying the same thing. There's another parallel idea here. My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. What's parallel to God's purpose? My good pleasure. His good pleasure. The good pleasure of God is the same as the purpose of God. Do you see that? There are parallel ideas in this verse. So when he talks about the good pleasure of the Lord being uh, prospering in Jesus' hand, it means the purpose of God will prosper in Jesus' hand. And the purpose of God is God's sovereign determinations, His decrees from eternity of what He's going to do. God isn't flying by the seat of His pants making this stuff up as He goes along. From all eternity He has had a sovereign purpose of what He intended to do when He created the world, allowed mankind to fall into sin, sent His Son to redeem it. There's been this sovereign purpose of God throughout all of His human history. So going back to our text, God's going to accomplish His good pleasure or His sovereign purpose for His people. So what I want you to see here is that the running of the universe has been turned over to Jesus Christ because Isaiah 53 verse 10 says that the good pleasure or the purpose of the Lord will prosper in His hand. He's going to bring about the decrees of God. Jesus is going to bring about God's sovereign purposes from the beginning of time. He came into the world to bring those things to pass. They're going to prosper in His hand. We also read, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. The word for anguish means toilsome labor or work. We might not understand that just by reading the word anguish. We don't get that feel from it. But if you go back to the Hebrew word, it includes the idea of toilsome labor or hard strenuous work. So as a result of the toilsome labor of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Jesus Christ had a definite work to do. Now we might not be satisfied with our paycheck at the end of a week, right? You might work a long week, you get your paycheck and you're kind of disappointed with how little it is. But Jesus is never going to be disappointed with his paycheck. He worked. He came into the world to work, to accomplish the Father's work. We call it the work of salvation or the work of redemption. And he's not going to be disappointed with his wages. Part of his wages is that he's going to see it, which we have to decide what that means. He's going to see it and be satisfied. 
what is, see what, and be satisfied? As a result of the toilsome labor or the anguish of his soul, he will see it. Well, the, the most recent antecedent is in verse 10. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it. See what? The good pleasure of the Lord. He's going to see God's purposes fulfilled through him, through his saving mission in the world. He's going to see what God had intended from all eternity actually worked out in real history and time through his life, his death, and his resurrection. So he's going to see the good pleasure of the Lord accomplished and what's it going to bring to his heart? Satisfaction. He will be satisfied. Have you ever thought about that? That when Jesus finished his work of redemption on this earth and rose from the dead and ascended back to heaven, he was satisfied. Because he had did exactly what the Father sent him into the world to do. And it brought satisfaction to his heart. So what is the good pleasure of the Lord that Jesus is going to see and be satisfied? I made a list of things. Here we go. There's a long list. He's going to see God glorified. He's going to see divine justice satisfied. He's going to see Satan's kingdom destroyed. He's going to see God's kingdom established. He's going to see every one of his offspring in heaven with him. He's going to see an innumerable multitude saved from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation on the earth. He's going to see the Holy Spirit poured out in the earth. He's going to see the gospel go forth in all the world. He's going to see gospel churches planted all over this planet. He's going to see the kingdoms of this world become his own kingdom. He's going to see every one of his sheep brought home to his fold. He's going to see every enemy become his footstool. He's going to see the graves emptied on resurrection day. He's going to see death destroyed. He's going to see all the nations standing before him in judgment. He's going to see the new heaven and the new earth. And he's going to see every creature in heaven and in earth bowing before him, confessing that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of that is the purpose of God that Jesus is going to see because he came into the world and fulfilled the Father's will. The good pleasure of the Lord is going to prosper in Jesus' hand. That's what he's going to see. Number three, he's going to justify his people. Go back to Isaiah 53 verse 11. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Jesus is going to justify his people. Notice, first of all, the appropriation of this justification. By appropriation, I mean, how does a person get it? What do they do in order to receive the justification of Christ? Well, it says here, by his knowledge... The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. By his knowledge it will happen. Now, that's, I don't believe that's talking about Jesus' knowledge of something. I think it's talking about our knowledge of Jesus. By his knowledge, in other words, by our knowledge of him, you, the word by his knowledge could go either way. It could mean what he knows or what I know about him. I think it's talking about our knowledge of him. And it's not talking about simply some head knowledge of certain facts about God because there are millions of people around the world that have some truth about God, but they're not saved. They've never been born of the Spirit. They've never had a change of nature. They've never had their sins forgiven. 
This is talking about the true child of God who knows his father. So to appropriate this justification means that we come into a saving knowledge of Christ or saving faith. That our faith goes out to him and latches on to him. That we're united to Christ through faith. But you say, well, okay, that's fine and dandy, but what, what are you talking about? What does it mean to be justified? Well, you can throw that word around and maybe not everybody understands what we're talking about. To be justified means that God declares you righteous. It doesn't mean that you actually are. It means he declares you to be. God justifies sinners even before they become righteous. Romans 4, 5. Even when a person is still in their sins, God pronounces them just in his sight because they have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, as soon as he justifies them, the Holy Spirit begins working on them to sanctify them. And they do start to become actually righteous in the sight of God. But at the moment they're justified, they're not righteous. They're unrighteous. But he pronounces them righteous. <laughs> he, he takes the beautiful garment that Jesus wears... And he takes that and covers over our filthy rags. Our black, soiled, torn garments, filthy garments. He takes this beautiful garment and he just covers it. So that when God looks at the sinner who believes in Jesus, he sees what he would see if he looked at his own son. And Jesus at the same time takes all of our filthy, rotten, torn rags and he puts them on. He takes his garment off, gives it to us, and he takes ours and puts it on, and he dies on the cross for our sin. There's an exchange that happens between Christ and the sinner. Justification means that we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with your works. has nothing to do with your performance. It has to do with you believing in him. Putting your faith in Christ, and you're covered. And you are accounted, imputed as righteous in the sight of Christ. So that's the appropriation. It's through faith. Knowing him. But what's the grounds of our justification? There's two of them. The first one is found in verse 11. By his knowledge, the righteous one. There it is. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. The righteous life of Jesus Christ is the first grounds of your justification. Now what do, you, what do I mean by that? I mean that God takes your sin and imputes it to Christ when he's dying on the cross. And he takes the righteousness of Christ and imputes it to you. The very righteous deeds that Jesus did when he lived on the earth. Think about his life. For he never committed any sin. He always did those, those things pleasing to the Father. He healed the sick, raised the dead, cleansed lepers. All of the righteous deeds he did for 33 years while he was alive, those right, that righteous life is taken by the Father and put to your account. It's like a bank account where you had nothing in it and all of a sudden you have a billion dollars put in there. God puts the righteousness of Jesus to your account when you believe in him. So the righteous life of Christ is just as important as his substitutionary death. I don't know if you think about that. When you come to die, you are going to thank God that Jesus, writes, Jesus Christ lived a righteous life. Because you didn't. And that righteous life that he lived is counted in place of your unrighteous life. He was our representative, not only in his death, but also in his life. 
Not only did he die for you, he also lived for you. Do you guys get that? His life is just as important as his death because in his life he wrought out a righteousness that could be given to you. So the first grounds of our justification is the righteous life of Christ. The second grounds is the sin-bearing death of Christ that comes out here where he says, as he will bear their iniquities. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. So not only was it important for Jesus Christ to live a perfect righteous life so he could give that righteous life to you, so that you could be accepted by God, it was also important that he take all of your iniquities upon himself and die, assuming the guilt and the punishment that those iniquities deserved. And Christ did that when he died on the cross. The sin-bearing death of Christ. He took upon his own shoulders and carries away our iniquities. Now, a dead man can't declare anybody to be righteous. That's why it's important that Jesus is risen from the dead. How is he going to justify you if he's still dead? He can't declare you righteous if he's dead and gone. And, no, but if he's a living Savior, he can justify you. He can declare, Judy Walpole, the righteousness of my own son. Esmeralda Wade, <laughs> the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because he's alive, he can do that. So that's the third thing we, we learn about the resurrection of Christ. He'll justify his people. Number four, he'll be glorified by his people. It says here in verse 12, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. Now, I told you a minute ago, the word great is the same Hebrew word for many. I will allot him a portion with the many, or with the great, with this multitude that no man can number. That's what the Bible says about the number of people in heaven. When you look around today, you see, where are all the Christians? You know, I don't see that many Christians. Well, if you take all the believers of all the ages and put them together, you can't number them. There's going to be millions and millions and millions of people that have been saved through the, the death and righteousness of Jesus Christ. So they're called the many. They're called the great. And he says, I will allot him, Jesus, a portion with the great. Well, what portion is God going to allot Jesus with the great? Well, we're told that in the previous chapter, Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. That's the portion that God is going to allot Jesus among the great, among the many. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. So, as a result of Jesus' righteousness and death, God has rewarded him with the supreme position in the universe. The most exalted position of any and all. So that when we come to be around the throne in heaven, he's going to be on the throne. We're going to be on our faces around the throne worshiping him. He's going to, God is going to allot him a portion among the great. We are the great, but he's, he's going to be allotted the portion, the greatest portion, the supreme portion, the most exalted portion of the one who's worshiped by everybody else in heaven, angels and men. 
In Revelation 5.12, the Bible says, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. For all eternity, He's going to be the focus of our worship. We're going to look upon His pierced hands and feet and say, that's why I'm here. It's because of what He did. He's going to be glorified by His people. And if you're one of his people, you're going to be bringing glory to him forever. You're going to be worshiping him forever. Okay, one more. One more benefit of the resurrection of Christ. He will share the spoils of victory with his people. Now, look at Isaiah 53, verse 12. It says, and he will divide the booty with the strong. And you say, what in the world is that talking about? Well, booty, <laughs> booty is like the spoils of victory. When you go into battle and you win the war, whatever's left over from that enemy, you take it, and that's, your, that's the booty. That's your spoils of victory. It might be horses or camels or bows and arrows or swords or gold and silver or food. Whatever you take because you win the victory, that's, that's the, the spoils. That's the booty. Here it says... He is going to divide the spoil with the strong. Remember, remember who the strong is? It's the many. It's the church. It's us. He's going to divide the booty with his people. Now, when Jesus went to the cross, he went into war. Colossians chapter 2.15 says, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. What that simply means is that when Jesus went to the cross, he defeated Satan. He was the victor, the champion over Satan. Not only Satan, but over death and hell as well. So Jesus went to the cross. He was the mighty victor at the cross over the powers of darkness and his enemies. And when Jesus conquered Satan at the cross, there were certain spoils that he now divides or shares with his people. So what are they? What are those spoils? Well, I, I made a short list of some of these spoils. Forgiveness of sins. Jesus obtained forgiveness of sins when he died for his people. The gift of eternal life. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The adoption as sons. The gifts of repentance and faith. The spiritual gifts that are given to the church to serve Christ and to serve His church. And the glorification of our bodies on the last day. All of that were the spoils of His victory when He went to the cross. And now, they're His booty, but He can give that booty to whoever He wants. He can keep it for Himself if He wants, but He doesn't. He has such a generous and loving and good heart that He just divides that up with all of His people. That's why... You repented and you believed because he gave you the gifts of repentance and faith. That's why you have eternal life. It's part of the spoils of his victory that he shared with you. The mighty victor, the general, takes all of these things that he won in battle and he starts handing it out to his soldiers. And you and I are his soldiers. Ephesians 4.8 says, When he ascended on high... He led, a, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So when Jesus ascended on high, he led his people 
that were purchased at the cross, he led them with him, and he divides, he, he gives gifts to men. If you have a spiritual gift, it's because that's a fruit of what he accomplished at the cross, and he gives it out to you. In fact, in um, Romans 8.32, says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That verse is telling us that the all good things that God gives to us are the purchase of Christ at the cross. Christ went there and he purchased every good gift that you ever have or ever will have in this life and in the life to come. They flow from his work on the cross. They're the booty that he accomplished for his church. And now he's distributing that booty. Hebrews 1.2 says that Christ is the heir of all things. Christ inherited all things. And Romans 8.17 says that we are fellow heirs with Christ. Now put those two together. If he inherited all things, and we are fellow heirs with him, what does that mean? Doesn't that mean that we inherit all things too? He inherited all things, and we're fellow heirs with him. It's like we're, we're joint heirs. Like if someone dies, and in their will, they say, I give to my son everything. Well, if you happen to be married to that son, you get everything too, right? <laughs> And we're the bride of Christ. Christ has inherited all things, but we're his bride. We inherit all things too in him. And that's why 1 Corinthians 3.22 says, all things belong to you. All things. Jesus didn't just go to the cross for himself alone. He went there representing you and I. So what he obtained through victory there is shared. He shares it with his soldiers. So, usually we think of Christ's resurrection and we focus only on the benefits that we receive from it, but Isaiah 53 is talking about the benefits that Christ receives. He's going to see his people. He's going to accomplish God's good pleasure for his people. He's going to justify his people. He's going to glorify, or I should say, he's going to be glorified by his people. And he's going to share the spoils of victory with his people. Now, the benefits that Christ receives from his resurrection are also our benefits. Think about this with me. If Jesus is going to see his people, that means you and I are going to see him. If he's going to accomplish God's good pleasure, that means that his saving work can't fail. If he's going to justify his people, that means that we will never be condemned, now or in eternity. If he's going to be glorified by his people, that means we're going to have the pleasure of bringing glory to him in heaven forever. And if he's going to share the spoils of victory with his people, it means that we will be the blessed beneficiaries of what he purchased at Calvary. So think about the resurrection of Christ today and just let your heart be filled with the knowledge of what God was doing in that resurrection. It was far, far bigger than just deciding to save one person here, one person there. There's a, this cosmic plan that God was working out through his son when he goes to the cross and then rises from the dead. He's alive forevermore. So he is worthy of our worship. 
We are called into his kingdom to be worshipers. That's our purpose. God made us to be worshipers. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ helps us. It fuels us to be worshipers of the Son of God. Amen. Lord, how we rejoice in the truths that you've shown us from this chapter. Lord, especially that you are going to accomplish the Father's good pleasure through your resurrection. We're going to see that, Lord. We're going to witness it. That you would justify your people, Lord. That you'd give us the pleasure of glorifying you. Being with you forever, Lord. And Lord, we think about how gracious and generous you were to divide all the spoils that you, you, you won in, in that battle against Satan. You'd, all those uh, blessings and you just pour them out on us. So Lord, help us to be real worshipers. Help every day of our lives, Lord, to turn our hearts to you and give you worship. In Jesus' name, amen.